Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, everyone. So before we start today, just a quick note to say that this is the last episode of Nothing is Foreign. I want to thank everyone who's listened to the show and all the guests who made the time to bring us into their corner of the world and explain it to us. The idea for NIF was inspired by conversations I've had my whole life with friends about things that were happening back home and a longing to hear more people from the global south challenging Western perspectives on the world in mainstream media. And it's been such a joy to be able to bring that idea to life with the people whose names you've heard in the credits at the end of each show. Joyta Shangupta is a brilliant producer who's worked so hard to construct these stories and fulfill our mandate of using only local experts. Elaine Chow has been such a steady leader who's helped us feel like we could breathe again. And Graham McDonald has been an incredible sound designer who's made every episode sing. Many others have stepped in along the way, and I'm so grateful to all of them. Thank you to Nick McCabe-Locos and Willow Smith for their guidance and encouraging us to make the show that we wanted to make. For the next three months, you can find me on FrontBurner. I'm going to be hosting for a while. But for now, thank you so much for supporting this show and on to today's episode. So the last couple of years in the world of golf, a world which doesn't normally intersect with international politics, have been full of drama as a new player has entered the game, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Professional Golfers Association, which is the American body governing most professional tours, had been fighting a PR and legal war against the Saudi-funded Live Tour. The PGA said Liv was using astronomical sums of money to take its players and use golf to sports wash Saudi Arabia's recent history of atrocities. Then, earlier this month, the golfing community was stunned by the news of a merger between the PGA Tour and the Liv Tour, with the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund becoming the exclusive investor in the new entity. The PGA says the move will, quote, unify the game of golf. But critics and human rights activists argue the merger will stain the legacy of the tour, given Liv's close ties to the Saudi royal family. The merger is just one of many big headline-grabbing investments in sports that Saudi Arabia has made recently. That same week, French soccer player Karim Benzema signed a three-year deal with the Saudi soccer team for a reported $100 million. And it's more than just golf and soccer. And the Saudi Grand Prix is go. Alonso's going to put pressure on Perez in the opening meters of the Grand Prix. Fernando Alonso. And the reigning, defending, undisputed WWE Universal Heavyweight Champion, Roman 
Kingdom of Saudi Arabia! Acknowledge me! This is all being funded by Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, also known as the PIF. This is a giant pot of money, over $600 billion, which is basically the country's savings account. It's controlled by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's using it to try and make even more money, $2 trillion by 2030. This is all part of a plan known as Vision 2030, which is designed to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy away from oil. Today on the show, we're going to talk about that plan, the growing role of sports in it, and how it's all being received back home. My guest is Ahmed Al-Amran. He's a Saudi journalist and former correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and The Financial Times. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Ahmed, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by breaking down the kinds of sports investments that Saudi Arabia has been making in the last little while. And maybe let's just start with soccer. Take me through what Saudi has done to grow its influence in the world of soccer. They have done quite a few deals in recent weeks, as we have seen, bring in some big superstar players. But that didn't start just in the last few weeks. It actually started a few months earlier when... Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the top players in the world, signed for a Saudi club in January and he played the second half of this season that just ended uh, with a Nasser, a club in Riyadh. I want to continue here. I will continue here. And in my opinion, if they continue to do it, the work that they want to do it for the next five years, I think the Saudi league can be in the fifth in the world. You know- now we're going into the summer where, you know, most of news around the sports are focused on transfers and players moving. So that's why we're seeing a lot of headlines being generated about players potentially coming to play in Saudi Arabia after being offered um, multi-million dollar contracts. Lots of big names are being linked with a move to Saudi Arabia. Hyungmin Son is wanted by Al Ittihad. Now, reports are suggesting a bid of around £50 million could soon be made. Chelsea defender Khalidou Koulibaly is also in talks with Saudi Arabia club Al Hilal. But I think it is also important to note that this is not a recent thing for Saudi in the sense that Football has always been a huge sport in the country. Some of Saudi Arabia's oldest teams were established in the late 20s and early 30s. So the kingdom has always been a major force in Asian football. I remember from the World Cup that Saudi fans are quite soccer obsessed and Saudi Saudi Arabia did quite well in this past World Cup too, right? Yeah, I mean, this was their fifth or sixth participation uh, at the World Cup. They qualified for the first time in 1994 and They've always been a major force in the continent. Uh, Their win against Argentina, the eventual champion in the last World Cup in Qatar, was phenomenal. Now an opportunity for Saudi Arabia, and it is taken! I was in the stadium for that game. It was mad. Mm -hmm. Like, the the passion of the Saudi fans uh, was just something to behold. Saudi Arabia is football mad. Uh, The local league has been active for more than 50 years. 
Uh, it only professionalized in the early 90s, and that's also when they started to allow clubs to recruit foreign players. We're seeing more and more prominent and bigger names coming into the league now as more money and investment is being injected into the local clubs uh, as part of this new economic diversification plan. So we've seen Cristiano Ronaldo join the Saudi Pro League and also recently Kareem Benzema. What's the thinking behind trying to get these big players to Saudi Arabia? The idea is to make the league more competitive, more watched and more followed. And as part of that, you need the star power. You need to bring these big international stars uh, to come here, which would you know attract more eyeballs, attract more uh, following and more fans to the league. And you know, the plan is eventually this attention and these eyeballs will translate into more revenue for for the clubs, for the league and for, for the country at large. We can expect more and more names to come because the plan is to have the Sovereign Wealth Fund inject money into the major clubs to bring uh, more than a dozen big name stars to the league uh, before the start of the new season this fall. It's not just about soccer. There's also been a lot of money poured into golf as well. A couple of weeks ago, it was announced that the PGA Tour and the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is overseen by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, that they're joining forces. And this has been a huge controversy here in North America. And for people who haven't been following, could you explain what Saudi Arabia has pulled off in that world? The PIF, the Saudi Sovereign Fund, uh, launched a new golf tour called the Live Golf Tour last year and managed to attract some big players from the PGA Tour, which is kind of the established golf tournament uh, in, in the U.S. and around the world, too. Do you fault Phil Mickelson for joining the Saudi Live Golf Tour for a reported 200 mil? I mean, what is trying to get, you know, can you can you blame him? Yeah, you can blame him. No, you can't blame two hundred million dollars. Ooh, it's so much money. It is so much. And money that created a bit of disruption in the golf world, you know, as players kind of divided between the two major forces now. And there has been quite a bit of animosity between the two tournaments, including uh, litigation in American courts. And, and to really comprehend what a 180 this is. Just listen to what the PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaghan said last June, less than a year ago, when all this was kicking off and when players were leaving to join the Live Tour, when they were defecting, becoming these rebel players. As it relates to the families of 9-11, uh, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the pga tour but surprisingly uh, earlier this month the two sides announced settling their uh, differences and merging into one entity that would unify the the world of golf under one umbrella and it was a bit of a shock because considering the the litigation and, and the language that was being used between the two sides until that point. Uh, but it's still, you know, a bit of a strange one uh, because even though golf is a big sport in North America, it, it's not a big sport at all locally in Saudi Arabia. Uh, 
And as such, you know, that story actually did not generate a lot of attention and coverage over here. But even though, you know, golf is not a big sport locally, what's going on for it is the fact that the governor of the public investment fund, uh, Yasser Armayan, is said to be an avid golfer. Ah, interesting. The deal is interesting in the sense that it offers a blueprint of how the Saudis can present themselves as major players, even in areas where you would expect established entities like the PGA to put up a lot of resistance. Uh, which was the case here. But the Saudis feel they succeeded, uh, and it is hard to argue against that now. So these are just... A few of the investments Saudi Arabia has made in sports, they've also invested in Formula One, the English Premier League, in boxing in the last few years. And I've also read Saudi Arabia is aiming to host 25 world championships across a number of sports by 2030. What has the government said about why it's investing so heavily in sports? Saudi officials say making these investments and hosting major events fit within their strategy of opening up the country and diversifying its economy. The Saudi population is very young. More than 60% are under the age of 35. And many of them, as we said, are passionate sports fans. And there are two sides of their argument here. One is these young people love sports and we want to bring sports to them. But also we want to raise the profile and awareness of those sports so more people will pick up sports and practice them because obesity is a big problem in the country. And then another factor is obviously revenues. It's, It's part of the plan to diversify the economy and sports is being seen as a sector where they see a lot of potential for growth and job creation. And it would also help with growing other sectors like tourism by bringing more attention and more eyeballs to look at the country as it hosts these major sporting events. These most recent developments with these soccer players going over to Saudi Arabia and the PGA and Live merger, they've been controversial, not just because these big players are leaving these North American and European sports leagues, but also because there have been accusations for a long time that Saudi is buying teams and recruiting players to launder its international reputation around its human rights record, right? Things like mass executions. There were 47 executions in all, and uh, they took place across the country, many of them by beheading, and the majority were actually Sunni uh, Muslims who were convicted of crimes related to terrorism linked to groups like al-Qaeda. But the small- Cracking down on political opposition, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, this is what critics are talking about when they accuse Saudi Arabia of sports washing. How much do you think that is part of the Saudi government's motivation here? Well, Saudi officials have always rejected the accusations of sports washing, uh, saying they're simply doing things in the interest of their people and their economy. Now, obviously, part of, of doing that is raising the profile of the country. And with that comes scrutiny that leads to these accusations. Government supporters even argue that if anything, these investments in sports have generated more negative than positive headlines about the country 
because human mm-hmm. rights groups and critics have condemned these deals and called on sports players to boycott Saudi-hosted events. Lujain El Hathloul led the Saudi Women to Drive movement and was punished for her activism, arrested, charged with terrorism, and sentenced to prison, where she says she was tortured. Even after her release, she is prevented from leaving the country. Her sister Lena lives in exile and spoke with us remotely. When we talk about sports, of course, we we do want to have entertainment in Saudi Arabia. We do want to have this, but not at the expense of uh, of our freedoms. We don't want to be living in fear and not knowing if tomorrow uh, they will break into our house uh, and take uh, our sister or uh, our daughter. I do not want to live in this country. I want to live in a country where I feel free, truly. Even if they have fancy sporting events? I want both. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. We talked about these major investments in sports, but what else is the Saudi government doing to diversify the country's economy? Since coming to power in 2015, the crown prince has said that he does not want the Saudi economy to remain hostage to fluctuations in oil prices and disruptions of energy markets. Uh, We saw him sell a chunk of the state oil company Aramco on the local stock market and empowering the Southern Wealth Fund to make a wide range of investments in the hope of high returns in the future. The PIF have launched around 80 companies over the last seven years, investing in a wide range of sectors, uh, including tourism, technology, renewable energy, sports, as we said, aviation. And just yesterday, they announced launching a pharmaceuticals company, so it's a lot of different things. Let's stick with Nintendo for a second because Saudi Arabia's public investment fund just became the largest outside shareholder of the video game company. This the latest move. Now, the plan is partly working. Uh, non-oil GDP has been growing steadily over the last few years, but it has not been without hiccups, uh, particularly uh, they are struggling to attract enough foreign direct investment for a lot of these major projects that they have launched. Neom is a proposed futuristic smart city currently being built in the Tabuk province in northwestern Saudi Arabia. The project plans to cover an area of more than 10,000 square miles, about the same size as Massachusetts. The Saudi Crown Prince's ambitious Vision 2030 and the construction in the Neom project hit snags since its announcement in 2017. Activists say there is major corruption involved through a decree which transfers land to Mohammed bin Salman that's then bought by the Saudi state for Neom. Uh, but that did not stop them. Uh, the PIF seems to be pushing ahead with a lot of these initiatives and projects because they see them as having a high potential uh, for the future as they also see them as strategically important for, for the growth of the country. 
And we've kind of touched on this throughout our conversation, but why does Saudi Arabia need to diversify its economy? And what could happen if it doesn't do this fast enough or it doesn't do it the right way? The fear is that failing to diversify could see the country struggle economically as the rest of the world moves away from fossil fuels. Uh, Poor economic conditions would lead to unemployment, which is dangerous in a country full of young people and could eventually lead to social and political unrest, as we have seen in other countries in the region. That's part of the reason why the government and its sovereign wealth fund have been very eager to push things very quickly to try to grow the private sector and make it generate jobs in, in, in unprecedented rates. They're trying to explore all areas where they can achieve growth. Right. You know, the, the risk of, of failing to diversify is very high. They are focused on sectors that they view as strategic for the future of the country and its growth, uh, but also sectors where they believe that private investors would be hesitant to go either because they're too risky or, or take a long time to bring returns like infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this focus on the private sector, it's about creating jobs that are eventually not going to need government investment, right? Because right now, a lot of jobs are government jobs. And the hope is that by investing in the private sector, the government is going to be able to cut the public sector wage bill, which right now accounts for like 45% of government spending. Yeah, it used to be higher than that. And the plan is to bring down that number uh, over several years uh, to make the private sector the main driver for economic growth and job creation. It's a major transformation because for a very long time, the Saudis have used to having comfortable, well-paying government jobs. And these jobs no longer exist as the government tried to transform the economy and and change how how the country works. Just going back to what you said about how the population is really young. So the number that I saw is 63% of people are under 30. And you were talking about how you don't want, I guess, a lot of young unemployed people because there is the risk of instability. And I'm curious, what are young people in Saudi Arabia saying right now? How do they feel about what the government is doing to diversify the economy? And what are they kind of concerned about and talking about right now? A lot of a lot of young people are very supportive of, of a lot of these changes because, uh, I mean, you can look at them from more than one uh, side. Uh, one side is the economy, and you can argue that continuing on the same path, on the same economic model was very risky. But the country has also gone through a rapid uh, social and cultural transformation as part of this change because the government see social change and opening as a condition for economic diversification, that you cannot diversify the economy if you don't open up the country and remove many of the old restrictions that used to exist on things like entertainment, uh, the role of women, gender mixing. So the lifestyle has become more open and more liberal than it used to be over the last few years, which is something many young Saudis have wanted for a very long time. And when it comes to changing the country, these young people 
as I say, they cannot expect to get the same comfortable government jobs that their parents did or had. Does that present a unique set of challenges, the fact that this is a generation of people that was used to a certain kind of lifestyle and has only known like a certain kind of work, but now they're having to look for these different kinds of jobs? And has the government been preparing its citizens for the reality that this wealth might run out? Yeah, I mean, this, the government has been very clear as they launched this plan that, you know, the old model was no longer working and that to change the economic model of this country, we also need to change our expectations of the nature of work, the nature of pay, the living standards, all these things. You know, the idea like in the past that Saudis do not accept to work and service jobs have been changing and we're seeing more and more Saudis picking up jobs in service sectors like tourism, like restaurants uh, and other places as they, they face this new reality. It will take a bit of an adjustment for the mentalities to change and for society as large to accept that the old ways and the old jobs are no longer working and that people should look into alternatives as as the future brings all these changes with it. Technology, artificial intelligence, all these things that would change how we live and, and work. And these jobs that Saudis are now taking more and more these service jobs in sectors like tourism. Are these jobs that used to be mostly filled by foreigners? Yeah, a lot of these service jobs used to be uh, filled by, by foreigners, but increasingly the Saudis are taking up these jobs because economic conditions have changed. Saudis first. Now, that's the Saudi government's plan to reduce unemployment among native Saudis. Employers who hire non-Saudis will have to pay higher fees. And jobs in shops like this one, selling electronics, for example, will be restricted to Saudis only. But also the nature of these jobs have changed in a way that made them more palatable to, to Saudis. These investments that the government is making in sports, do you think people will feel the economic benefit of these investments inside Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I mean... Investing in these local clubs would, you know, generate more revenues in the sports sector, which can become an engine for creating jobs for young people. And it's a sector that should be very attractive for a lot of young people who are sports fans and would love to work in sports. Obviously, it's a new part of the economy that would bring with it its challenges, but also new opportunities that many people would be eager to explore and take advantage of. We started out talking about the investments in global sports that Saudi Arabia has made and how those fit into the country's goal of diversifying its economy away from oil. And there's so many other things that we could talk about related to that that we don't really have time to get into. You mentioned that in order to open up economically, the country has to change a lot of things socially. But I wonder if you think all of this could have the reverse effect, too, and introducing all these economic changes and Saudi Arabia's global ambitions, do you think all of that could influence the kind of place Saudi Arabia is politically? We'll have to wait and see. I mean, the changes have been very rapid uh, and their impact is still playing out. And 
you know, as we have seen with Qatar last year with hosting the World Cup, you know, going for these major sports events and, and, and you know, large scale investments abroad is great for raising the profile of the country, but also brings with it a lot of scrutiny when it comes to their human rights record, their political systems, the state of labor rights and other issues. It's something the country must grapple with as it opens up. Ahmed, thank you so much. This was fascinating. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta with help this week from Rachel DeGasparis. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. I'm Tamara Kandacker. You can find me on FrontBurner very soon, and I will talk to you there. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.